Good day, everyone. Welcome to our episode on technological mediations. For this week, I am requiring you to go through two materials, first of which is Chapter 1 of John Berger's Ways of Seeing, which you can either watch in YouTube or you can choose to read the book. They are basically the same thing. And then, after that, listen to Episode 2 of James Bridle's New Ways of Seeing. Now, the interesting thing about our set this week is that Bridal is actually responding to Berger's influential work from the early 70s and updating his ideas. He is engaging Berger into a dialogue. Ways of Seeing was a seminal work that brought attention to a particular kind of engagement we have with visual works in the age of mass media. Berger brings into focus the way in which particular technologies at that time, this was mainly the camera and the television screen, mediated how we see images. What does this mean? Well, the invention of the camera allowed us to see works even when they were not in front of us. Images could not travel. They are now unbounded by place and time. If I ask you, do you know what Juan Luna's Polarium looks like? Or do you know what the Mona Lisa looks like? You would answer, well, yes, you have seen them. But where exactly have you seen them? We know the Polarium. We know how it looks like, but not everyone has been to the National Museum in Manila. And fewer of us have actually been to the Louvre in Paris. I remember when I first saw the Spolarium, I was astounded by its scale. It's a very big painting, and its size further drives home the drama and the, tr and the tragedy that the painting depicted. But you don't really sense that scale when you see it on your textbook. On the other end, when I asked a friend who had been to the Louvre what she thought of the Mona Lisa, she said that I was probably better off looking at it from my computer screen. Apparently, she could not even see the painting at all when she went to the Louvre because the work was always surrounded by a crowd taking pictures, visitors were not allowed to approach it closely, it was small, and it was displayed behind thick bulletproof glass. In both cases, we have a situation that is very common in our time, where the reproduced image actually supersedes the object. It is likely that we have a more direct relationship with the reproduction, whether that be in our computer screens, in books, in mugs, in t-shirts, than having a direct relationship with the actual thing, with the actual artwork. Berger states that seeing is less spontaneous and natural than we tend to believe. He demonstrates how, when we see a work in our screens, the camera moves. It zooms in on particular parts of a work, music may be overlaid on the images, or the camera may show sequences of images which create a kind of narrative. What Berger is doing here is making us conscious of the mediation that occurs through technology, that we are seeing things through a particular frame or lens, and this frame affects how we interpret and appreciate the work. Various other interests and actors may be involved in the frame. These may be human subjects manipulating the camera, 
producers, writers, or directors dictating how a program should unravel. In our time, the images we see in our phone screens are suggested to us by the algorithms of platforms. So in the age of mass media, as images travel, it is not anymore tied to a particular place and to a limited context. And since it can come to you, this traveling image can construct other narratives or other meanings. It can be used for other purposes. For example, the Mona Lisa can be printed on a mug and sold in the museum shop, which you buy as proof that you have visited the Louvre. Or you can hang a reproduction of it to decorate your room and prove to your friends that you are cultured and knowledgeable about the arts. Berger takes a more positive stance towards the fact that we can now reproduce works of art, that they have become more accessible. He argues against the mystification that art historians and scholars do of cloaking the work with text to make it mysterious, romantic, or to depict it as a work of, of a genius that we cannot fully comprehend. At the end of Ways of Seeing, Bircher looks at the camera and tells you, you cannot reply to me. His viewers at that time did not have the capacity to respond to whoever was talking on their screens. Nowadays, we somehow do. Not only can we respond to content creators, we can also create our own content. We can make images, reproduce existing ones easily, mix them up, put text on them, change the context in which they can be seen and understood. We do this every time we put an image with a caption on social media. But this hasn't quite been the utopia that Bridger seems to have predicted or looked forward to. Yes, we do have a more direct relationship with images. We have demystified fine arts to a certain extent. We now critique depictions of female nudes in Renaissance paintings in the same breath as we do that for female depictions in movies and television shows. And yes, somehow it has been amazing, but our problems have also become more complex. And images and their reproduction play a role in these problems. I want you to think about an image, let's say, of the latest mobile phones that we, we see on storefronts or in ads. Most of the time, what is presented to us in these advertising images are three-dimensional artistic renditions of the product. When you watch an ad, let's say the latest ad for iPhone 12 Pro, it is likely that the image of the iPhone in front of you was created digitally, since that would be easier to do nowadays than to shoot an actual iPhone floating on air against a backdrop of sky. Advertising takes various creative liberties to enhance the sensuous aspects of the product. But it enhances the product not only to make it even more desirable, but also to sell us a particular lifestyle, a particular set of values. But there are even more insidious ways in which image making has evolved. For instance, some of the strategies advertising used have also been utilized for disinformation campaigns. Indeed, Academic studies on disinformation in the country point to 
ad executives, creatives as the brains behind particular disinformation campaigns and troll industries. In our second material, In New Ways of Seeing, the artist Hito Steirl claims that images have become agents of history, that nowadays they don't only reflect reality but can actually change and dictate upon it. We only have to look at the current social media landscape to know that this is true. Fake news, fake accounts, fake images proliferate, for instance, in Philippine social media. Our ability to make images of our own has become an ability to create images that aren't even connected to reality. It, be, it has become the ability to create alternative versions of reality. This is very dangerous. And this is not only because there are bad actors that manipulate the technology for insidious ends, but the technologies on which these disinformation campaigns spread aren't innocent. Current platforms such as Facebook, YouTube, or Twitter are reliant on the attention economy. And in this game, virality is crucial. Viral content leads to engagement. But also in this game, the truth or validity of content doesn't matter. Fake information that are incendiary, emotional, and aggressive can become viral easily. And this leads to higher engagement, and in turn, this engagement is rewarded on the platform. But it's not only that we now create images divorced from reality to reach massive numbers of people and persuade them to think in certain ways. The camera has also been turned towards us. We now have machines learning things about us in order to predict behavior or target us with material that we will find more engaging, that will hook us. In the past, Berger advocated for a more democratized access to images, for the capacity to relate it to our own experiences. Nowadays, however, a wide range of our experiences are captured as images and fed into platforms. Both the images we put up and the images we view become data that is harvested and through which various decisions are made. Algorithms, for instance, decide on what images to show us next, to hold our attention for longer and longer hours, or maybe to target us with particular videos, to bring us content that may persuade us to buy certain products, to swing towards certain ideas, or to vote for particular figures. In an article for The Guardian, Paul Luis interviews former tech executives from Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter who designed features that amounted to psychological hacks or tricks to keep our attention. These include the like or heart button, the red notification icon, or the pull to refresh mechanism that we find in these platforms. These design features hook our brains into addiction, activating reward-based behavior. It has come to the point where even these designers themselves couldn't stop using the technologies they had helped make. But despite these whistleblowers, it is difficult for large tech companies to change course because of how reliant they are on the attention economy. 
But what is more insidious is the fact that in this setup, we are commodified. Our attention is monetized. In the past, we have looked at the world and utilized resources such as plants, minerals, animals as input into our economic systems, into our production processes. That capacity to extract has also been extended to other people. Groups and populations have been historically relegated as property and have not been ascribed the recognition of being human. This drive continues to this day in that even our leisure time, the hours outside of work, is now being extracted. Even the mundane minutes we spend falling in line in the grocery or those minutes we have before falling asleep. For some of us, the first thing we hold in the morning and the last thing we hold at night is our phones. When I talk about these things, I come from my own experiences. I first had a Facebook account at the age of 20. At that time, I could only access Facebook when I sit in front of the computer. That meant that before doing a task on my laptop, for example, I would probably spend an hour procrastinating, looking at posts from my friends. But then smartphones came along, and along with that, Facebook became better and better at making me stay on their site. Things evolved such that every time I was not doing anything, I was scrolling through Facebook. And the odd thing was, I couldn't stop. Sometimes, even when I was supposed to be doing something, even when I was in front of someone I was talking to, my instinct was to bring out my phone. Every time something vaguely interesting happened to my life, the first thought that comes to my mind is, I should post this online. And not only that, I found myself constantly distracted. It got to the point where when I would try to read a book, I would stop halfway on the page because I needed to pull out my phone. How did we ever come to this? In this online digital environment, what are we to do? How are we to regain a sense of control over the images that are being fed to us at both a personal and collective level? And how do we intend to resist if we do want to resist the extraction and monetization of our attention and experiences.